The two days went by in a blur of activity. Kang gave orders, supervised the loading of the wagons, made certain the provisions were readied. He had to deal with innumerable crises, some minor, one major. The major crisis occurred when the three disabled draconians, hearing that their fellows were marching off to war and assuming that they would be left behind to starve, tried to kill themselves by mixing the ground-up petals of the death lily with their nut ale. They were discovered in time to prevent the deed. Kang spoke to them, showed them their names on the roster, and promised that not only would they march with the draconian regiment, but that they would have their share of duties to perform. He put them in charge of inventorying the supplies and the weapons, determining what they should take and what they should leave behind. This freed up three able-bodied draconians for other duties, so that what Kang had done proved worthwhile. Still, it was just one more distraction. Perhaps it's just as well I don't have time to think about this too much. He was reflecting over a delayed dinner when a knock sounded on his door. It was at least the one hundredth knock in the space of an hour, Kang sighed. Yes, what is it? I'm eating, or trying to. Excuse me, sir, but we've got a report from one of the scouts. I think you should hear it, sir. Of course I should hear it, Kang grumbled. He shoved aside his plate. Send him in. The scout, Abaz, shuffled inside, bobbing his head and darting quick glances about. He'd never been in his commander's quarters before. What is it? And be quick, Kang growled. The Boz ducked his head again. Yes, sir. Some dwarves have been watching us, sir. We spotted them yesterday. They're up in a tree in that copse about a mile away. We didn't report it, because they weren't doing anything except just sitting in the tree. But they were back today, and our lieutenant wants to know what to do. Do we haul them down, sir, or let them be? Let them be, said Kang with a smile. They're only trying to figure out what we're up to, probably quaking in their boots, afraid we're getting ready to launch a major assault on them. Aren't we, sir? I mean, wouldn't it be a good idea? Suppose they tell someone we're leaving. Kang had considered just such a course of action. A dwarven village burned, and a wagon load of dwarven heads would be a fine present for their new commander. And it would ensure the dwarves' silence. But Kang had already rejected the idea, if for no other reason than the mug of dwarf spirits next to his plate. He owed the dwarves a debt. They had provided food, drink, and an odd sort of companionship over the years. If the knights of Tachesis could talk of honor and speak with respect of their enemies, then by the dark lady so could Kang. Who are they going to tell? Kang shook his head. The nearest Salamnic knights, probably a hundred miles away, and the dwarves don't have much use for them anyhow. And by the time the dwarves realize we're gone for good, they won't care where we went. He laughed. We grabbed the glory. They grabbed this town. Good for them. They'll at least get most of their belongings back. The draconians marched on the second day, just as Slith had promised. They were six hours behind schedule, but they were ready to go. The regiment assembled in the village square for the last time. Kang stood in front of them. Life has been good these past years, he said simply, but it's going to be better. Today, once again, we march for the glory of the queen. 
With that he turned, strode to the front of the column, and led the way out of the gate, out of the wall which his men had built, the one thing they had built that might actually outlast them, the only thing. He did not look back. Chapter 17 The Draconian squadrons marched as single units. All were in full fighting gear, all their provisions and engineering tools and equipment were loaded onto the wagons. Each Draconian wore a small pack on his back, containing any personal objects that he had acquired over the years of living on the side of Mount Dashanak. That wasn't a lot. Most of what they owned they left for the dwarves. More out of curiosity than because he feared any trouble from the dwarves, Kang had left Slith behind with a scouting party to see what the dwarves were up to. The party caught up with the main body late that night. Well, what happened? Kang asked. As soon as we marched out, Slith reported, one of the dwarves in the tree shinnied down and ran like his pants were on fire back to the village to report. Horns blew and bells rang. The whole damn village turned out to drive off the assault. Slith grinned. They waited and waited, the sun beating down on them, and of course we never showed up. That war chief of theirs finally gathered together a group, and they marched over to the village. They met up with the three dwarves still sitting in the tree, who reported that we were nowhere in sight. The war chief took a squad with him and marched up to the gates, which were standing wide open. You should have seen those dwarves clutching their battle axes ready for us to leap out and massacre them. When the war chief finally got up nerve enough to walk inside the gate, the wind blew it, and those hinges creaked, made a squealing sound. The old dwarf jumped so high it was a wonder he didn't bump his head on Lunatari. Kang laughed appreciatively. What did they do then? Marched off, Slith said. Went back to their village. We watched, but they didn't send out any runners or messengers. Good, excellent. Well done, Slith. The Sivak nodded and returned to take his place in line. Kang's spirits, which had been extremely low when he left the village, soared now that he was on the road. He was marching at the head of a regiment of well-trained soldiers, some of the best in the business, off to join a mighty army of conquest. He'd made the right decision, he was sure of it. They crossed the mountain pass over Mount Dashanak, traversed the Forthin Ridge, and camped in the valley beyond. Slith was also in a good mood. The Draconians hadn't made a forced march like this in years. They were out of shape and out of practice, tripping over their own tails, complaining about the heat and sore feet. More than a few keeled over from a combination of unaccustomed exercise and an overabundance of dwarf spirits. Slith ranged up and down the line, his baton tickling stragglers, keeping them moving, and answering all complaints with a whack to the head. Those who fell were tossed into the wagons. No one envied them the ride. Slith prowled around the wagons, gleefully waiting for them to come to their senses. The journey was difficult, especially with the wagons, which had to be pushed and pulled and hauled over the rocky terrain, and then the trail ended at the edge of a cliff. The only way to reach their destination was straight down. The drop was easy enough for the winged draconians, but both wagons had to be lowered down the side of the mountain on ropes. This task took up an entire afternoon, and everyone was worn out by the end of it. 
Kang allowed them only a brief rest, however. Wrestling with the wagons had put them behind schedule, and he did not want to start off on the wrong foot with Lord Knight Sykes by showing up late. The second day, the Draconians reached the mountain pass where they were to meet up with Lord Knight Sykes and his army. They were right on time. No army in sight. Kang and Slith led the column over the last rise and were the first to notice that they were alone up here. Where the hell is everyone? Slith demanded. I knew that— Hush, Kang warned. Keep moving. We're not as alone as we thought we were. He pointed forward. A single knight, clad in black armor, stood up from a rock and motioned for the draconians to approach. As the knight removed her helm, red hair flowed behind her, her own personal banner. Kang recognized her. Talon leader Huzud. Greetings, Commander, she called. Kang saluted. Where is your army, Talon leader? I was told to meet Lord Knight Sykes here on this day. We came upon a patrol of mountain dwarves the day you left. We believe that we killed all of them, but on the off chance that one might have escaped to spread the warning, the Lord Knight determined that he had to move fast, hoping to invade Thorbardin before the dwarves could close the gates leading into the mountain. He force-marched the army through here a day and a half ago. I'm to lead you to the encampment. Kang had once seen the formidable gates of Thorbardin, gates that could be closed flush with the mountain wall. Attacking those gates would be tantamount to attacking the mountain itself, and probably just as successful. No wonder the Lord Knight had been in such haste. The Draconians had taken the opportunity of the halt to snatch a bit of rest. They were lying in what shade they could find, drinking sparingly from their water skins. Kang gave the signal to Slith, who ordered every man back on his feet. Aware of the eyes of the dark night upon them, the Draconians made haste to form into their lines, stood rigidly at attention. The regiment marched for the remainder of the day without pause, without complaint. Huzud glanced back occasionally at the line. It was an impressive sight, the sun gleaming on scale and metal the air stirred by the cooling breeze of the draconian's wings. Only when the sun was setting behind the mountain did Kang call a halt for a brief rest. We could camp here tonight, Huzud suggested. Her red hair was wet from perspiration, her fair skin reddened by the blazing sun. She wiped her forehead with the back of her leather-gloved hand. The Lord Knight isn't expecting us before tomorrow. We have the mountain to cross— and it's difficult journeying in daylight. Kang scratched his jaw. How much farther? he asked Huzud. She glanced at the mountains, at the sky, and said, Ten miles. Kang looked back down the line. His troops were tired, but not exhausted. They'd have a chance to rest tonight, be fighting fit for battle tomorrow. We'll carry on, then, provided that's all right with you. Of course, Huzud appeared pleased with his response. A thought occurred to Kang. Can you lead us through the pass in the dark? he asked, concerned. You humans cannot see well in darkness, or so I am told. No offense, he added hastily. Huzud smiled. None taken. What you say is true. And, she admitted, I've only flown over the pass by dragon. I've never walked it. But I know the way. I am trained to know the way. Kang bowed. He had complete confidence in her. My compliments to the trainer.
Huzud tied back her long red hair, regarded Kang with earnest intent. I had never met any draconians before you, Commander. I didn't expect you to be so, well, civilized, if you take my meaning. I thought you'd be more like goblins, crude and not very bright. No offense, she added slyly. Kang laughed. None taken. Underestimating us is a mistake many humans make, mostly to their detriment. He grew pensive. A day's marching side by side with someone makes them close as kin. He felt at ease with her. Perhaps that was the reason he shared thoughts with her he'd never shared with anyone else. We are bred of dragons, Talon Lady. Perhaps the most intelligent, the wisest beings alive on Kryn. The capacity to attain such wisdom, such knowledge, is within us. If we only had time. Time to live in this world, to learn its ways, to come to know its peoples. And if we could only pass on what we learn to... He stopped, embarrassed. What he was saying was foolish, and he knew it. He expected the Talon leader to regard him with scorn, or worse, laugh at him. To his astonishment, she was gazing at him with serious attention. Don't mind me, Kang added, waving a clawed hand. I've been in the sun too long. Heat and dwarf spirits always make me say crazy things. It's not crazy, she protested. What you are talking about is interesting. I never looked at it quite that way. No, it isn't, though you're kind to say so. Kang changed the subject abruptly. My men are rested now. If you're ready, we should be moving out. She agreed, and after drinking a few sips of water, they marched on. Neither she nor Kang spoke again during the long march, except to consult now and again on direction. But she looked at him a good deal, and her expression was thoughtful. He had definitely risen in her estimation. An hour later they came upon the road leading north, a road that was relatively new, as Kang, regarding it with an engineer's eye, could tell. Trees had been recently cut and cleared. The marks of pick and hammer were still visible upon the rocks. When did they build this? Kang asked. And who built it? The dwarves. Can't you tell their work? But it was a project begun by all three races, dwarves, humans, and elves. They were supposed to have signed a great treaty that would have allied all their kingdoms, opened up all their territories to trading one with the other. They were going to build roads like this one to link Solamnia with Thorbarden, Thorbarden with Qualinesti. Thus, if any one of them was attacked, the others could send armies in defense. It seems a wise plan, Kang said, worried, and it will make our task more difficult. It was a wise plan. A half-breed, known as Tanis Half-Elven, and his wife Lorana, the one they used to call the Golden General, came up with it. But no need to fear. The three races are their own worst enemies. In the light of waning Solinari, Kang saw a fall of rock that had not been cleared from the road, ditches that were left unfilled. I see what you mean. This road is broken. Like their treaty, said Huzud with a wry grin. It never even made it to parchment, or so I have heard. The elves are going back to their old isolationist ways. They have insulted the dwarves, who blame it all on the humans, who in their turn are offended by the exclusionist attitude of elves. One won't lift a finger to help the other. No, Commander, our task is going to be easy, very easy indeed.
An hour's march up the road they were stopped by two soldiers who stood blocking their way. Kang heard rustling in the brush on either side of the road, guessed that there must be at least fifty arrows aimed right at him and his men. Torches flared. Halt! Send forth one and be recognized, the soldier yelled. Kang ordered his men to halt. He and Huzud walked forward. I am Talon leader Huzud, she said. This is Commander Kang and the 1st Regiment, Draconians. The soldier saluted. Yes, ma'am. We weren't looking for you until morning, Commander. Please accompany me. The two soldiers followed the sentry along the road. Although he had not been told to bring his command with him, Kang wasn't about to leave his troops standing in the road after their long march. He signaled to Slith, who started everyone moving again. The sentry turned, frowning, and appeared about to protest. Kang extended his wings, lashed his tail slowly back and forth, and stared hard and cold at the sentry in the torchlight. Whatever the sentry had been going to say was left unsaid. The man turned hastily on his heel and continued down the road. Kang heard smothered laughter. Huzud, marching beside him, said nothing, but she was grinning broadly. They passed through two more checkpoints, then finally left the road and entered a grassy field to the side. Picket fires and cooking fires glowed like stars fallen to the ground in the surrounding fields. Slith! Kang yelled out. Slith trotted forward, saluted. Have the men set up right here. Same drill, no slacking off. I want a defensive ditch dug and sentries posted before anyone goes to sleep. Got it? Slith saluted then turned and issued orders in a rapid-fire staccato. The draconians fell out of formation and set to work, each performing his assigned task efficiently and with a minimum of confusion and noise. Huzud spent a few moments watching, then turned to Kang. I must return to my talon this night, but I will be back in the morning to escort you to the Lord Knight's command tent. I'll meet you here at sunup. Kang agreed, saluted. Until tomorrow, talon leader. Huzud returned the salute. Until tomorrow, commander. The officer walked away into the night. Kang turned to see his soldiers working with speed and efficiency. He smiled, his scales clicked together with pleasant anticipation. Until tomorrow. Chapter 18 A week had passed since Pestle and Mortar had left the dwarven village. The week had been eventful for Selquist. He had discovered the location of a vast treasure hoard. It had been eventful for the dwarves of Celebundan, who discovered the Draconians had, to all appearances, abandoned their homes of twenty-five years. It had been eventful for the Draconians, who had marched out to join up with Lord Ariakan's army. The week for Pestle and Mortar had been a bust. Upon arriving at Pax Tharkas, they found that city, which had after the war been about equally populated by humans and elves, along with a smattering of other races, to be half deserted. The elven contingent had packed up and moved out, according to reports, most of them gone to join with a rebel elf named Portheos. The human population was in an uproar over reports that the High Clarist Tower had fallen to an army of dark knights, and that the city of Palanthus was in the hands of some evil lord known as Ariacan. Rumor had it that Pax Tharkas itself was soon to come under attack. The gates of the fortress which had once housed the infamous dragon High Lord Verminard were shut, 
the walls manned. The guards had not wanted to allow pestle and mortar inside. When the dwarves hotly insisted, the guards marched them to the gatehouse and put them through a rigorous interrogation to make certain they weren't dark knights in disguise. Conscious of the stolen booty in their packs, the two dwarves were considerably alarmed by these proceedings. They quaked in their boots when the guards searched their packs, certain that they would be tossed in the Packstarkus jail. It'll probably be filled with candor, Pestle groaned. They always are, Mortar agreed gloomily. If the guards had found weapons in the packs, the dwarves would have most certainly been spending the night in prison, clutching their belongings and kicking any kender who ventured too close. As it was, finding only a few mundane household items, which Mortar claimed he was here to sell to raise money for homeless orphans, the guards let them pass. They did, as an afterthought, confiscate the skull with the glowing red eyes. Our most valuable item, Pestle sighed. The two were walking as fast as they could away from the guard tower. Selquist isn't going to be happy about this, Mortar noted. They made their way through the city, which was preparing to be besieged. Homeowners were boarding up windows. Men were filling barrels with water to put out fires. The city guard drilled in the streets. Women and children were headed for the hills. The marketplace was empty. The dwarves looked at each other and at their bags of loot and dismally shook their heads. Selecting a stall, they set out their wares, but the few people who passed merely glanced at the items and hurried on. The dwarves waited all day and sold nothing. Well, maybe it'll be better tomorrow, Pestle said. They packed up, found a cheap inn, and spent the night battling the fleas in the mattress. The next morning, sore and itchy, they went back to the market. They stayed until noon and had one visitor, a gully dwarf, who tried to sell them some dead rats on a string. Well, there's always Ranga, Mortar said. He won't give us much, but anything's better than nothing, Pessel agreed. Packing up their loot, they trudged off to the Kender's house. They had no difficulty finding it, though they hadn't visited in a year or so. It was the only house on the block with a bright purple door, glaring yellow walls, and stunning emerald green curtains. Wincing, the dwarves knocked at the door, doing their best to shade their eyes. The door popped open. A kender female greeted them. Why, hello! My goodness! You're dwarves, aren't you? the kender said. Yes, said Pessel, keeping tight hold of his pack. We're... Hey, everyone! the kender turned around. Come here and look! Dwarves! A whole passel of kender came to the door. Another group gathered at the window. They jabbered and chattered. You're right! It is dwarves! What kind of dwarves? Gully dwarves? Are you gully dwarves? We're not gully dwarves! Mortar shouted above the hubbub. We're Nidar. I don't need her. Do you need her? One of the kender asked. This produced gales of laughter, though Mortar couldn't see anything at all funny. But then Kender never needed a reason to laugh, one attribute which drove other more sane and sober races to distraction. The Kender poured out into the street to get a better look at their visitors. Mortar grit his teeth, held his pack to his chest, and carried on as best he could while fending off curious hands. I'm looking for... Put that back! I said I'm here to see... That's mine, confound you! No, don't tug on that! I say I'm here to see Ranga! He roared. Ranga? Ranga? Did he say Ranga? 
I think he said Rhonda. Do you know Rhonda? Maybe that's who he needs. He said he needed her. Do you need someone named Rhonda? We don't know anyone named Rhonda, but if you want us to ask around... Ranga! Pestle yelled. We want to see Ranga change hands. Ah! sang out the Kender all at once. Ranga change hands! He doesn't live here anymore, added one. Not live here? Mortar was astounded. Where did he go? Out, said one. Yes, he stepped out to borrow some sugar. When will he be back? Pestle asked. Couldn't say, the Kender shook their top-knotted heads. Before nightfall, surely, Mortar continued. He was beginning to feel desperate. Maybe, maybe not. Well, surely it can't take long to borrow a cup of sugar. When did he leave? Pestle joined the fray. The Kender put their heads together. Last month? No, two months ago at least. I think it was last year sometime. He wasn't here for my day of life gift. You weren't here for your day of life gift. Mortar gave his own beard a sharp yank. The pain brought tears to his eyes, but it also restored his sanity, which he felt slowly slipping away. He caught hold of Pestle, and the two began to retreat back down the street, keeping their eyes fixed on the kender at all times. Uh, thanks. We'll just be leaving now. The kender surrounded them, reaching out for them. Don't go! Not so soon! Can't you stay for tea? What's in the bag? Can I see? Do you want me to go look for Rhonda? What shall I tell her when I see her? Come on, Nidar, stay for tea, stay for tea! The kender crowded around, chanting and grabbing at the dwarves. Let go of that! Put that back! Don't unbuckle that strap! Now look, you've cut a hole in it. That's my pouch! The dwarves slapped roving hands and shoved curious kender heads out of their packs, but they were slowly being overwhelmed, and ultimate defeat appeared imminent. Already one kender was pretending to drink out of one of the silver ale mugs, while two more kender were having a mock sword fight with the bone candlesticks. What do we do? Pestle gasped, prying a kender hand out of one of his pockets. Stay for tea! Stay for tea! Several kender were dancing around the dwarves in a circle. Run for it! Mortar cried. He was engaged in a desperate tug of war with a kender over the second silver ale mug. What about the loot? Pestle shouted, making a vain attempt to recover the candlesticks. The loot's lost! We have to save ourselves! Selquist will be furious! Hang, Selquist! Mortar said viciously. Plunging forward, he broke through the circle, sending Kender tumbling and laughing in all directions. Pestle was right behind him. They didn't dare take time even to close their packs, which bounced and jounced on their backs. Whatever they had managed to save spilled out behind them, as they could tell by the chorus of oohs and ahs from the Kender. Are they coming after us? Mortar asked fearfully. Glancing back over his shoulders as he ran, Pestle saw the Kender on their hands and knees in the street, searching for dropped treasure. No, he breathed thankfully. We're safe. We won't be safe until we're out of Paxtarkas, said Mortar. As if to emphasize his words, they heard a shrill voice call after them, Hey, about Rhonda! The dwarves increased their pace. The two dwarves, in a glum mood, traipsed back to the front gate. They hoped to leave quickly, but they had almost as much trouble leaving as they had entering. You're crazy going back out there, said one of the guards. Why? Mortar asked. What's out there? Haven't you heard? Knights of Takesis, they call themselves. Dark knights. They're working for Queen Takesis. 
You better stay here where it's safe. Mortar and Pestle looked at each other and rolled their eyes. Dark nights. Humans were so gullible. Thanks, but we've got to get home. Yeah, well, warn your people. War's coming. We will. Thanks. The dwarves left Pax Tharkas. The gate door slammed shut behind them. They heard the bolt slide into place. Dispirited, overheated, empty-handed, the dwarves plodded gloomily down the road. They were far poorer after leaving Pax Tharkas than when they'd arrived, which hadn't been the plan. Selquist was indeed going to be furious, especially when he heard that they'd lost their loot to a pack of ravening kender. They would have ripped off our clothes, Pessel said defensively. Right, tell that to Selquist, Morta responded. The dwarves walked until they were tired, then camped for the night. They didn't take any precautions. Dark nights. What would the humans dream up next? The evening passed peacefully. It wasn't until about noon the next day that both dwarves began to grow uneasy. You know, said Mortar, this road is usually well-traveled. It's the main thoroughfare between here and points north, and we haven't seen a soul since we left Paxtharkas. It's the heat, said Pestle, though he kept glancing around nervously. Everyone's staying home because of the heat. You're probably right, Mortar agreed, but he didn't sound convinced. They traveled on, but now they kept to the side of the road in the shadows of the trees. Suddenly, Mortar jumped and swung around, staring behind him. What? Pestle snatched his axe out of its harness. What do you see? Nothing, said Mortar. He also had his axe in his hand. But I feel like I'm being watched. Me too, Pestle peered into the shadows. Maybe we should go back to Paxtharkas. We've come too far. We should just keep going. All right, but I think we should leave the road. We're too exposed. Let's move into the woods. The two took a step toward the trees. They were stopped by a twanging sound, and two arrows thudded into the ground, one in front of each dwarf. Move and you die, came a voice, a human voice, speaking dwarven. He spoke it badly, but the two weren't about to correct his pronunciation. An archer, dressed in black leather armor adorned with a hideously grinning skull, emerged from the woods. He had lowered his bow, but the dwarves could hear movement in the woods and guessed that others' arrows were still aimed in their direction. Do you understand, Common? the archer asked. Both dwarves nodded. Throw your axes down in the dirt in front of you, then put your hands on your heads. Are you going to rob us? Pestle asked. If you are, Mortar said, I feel it only fair that we warn you. You're wasting your time. We don't have anything of value. We are not thieves, the archer said, his lip curling in scorn. It is you who have broken the law. We are placing you under arrest. Mortar sighed in relief. He thought he knew where he stood. Look, we were never anywhere near Thorbarden. Ask anyone. On the night in question we were home sound asleep. The archer raised his bow. The arrow pointed straight at Mortar's heart. I said drop the axes. Mortar dropped the axe. Pestle did likewise. Nine more archers, clad in black leather identical to the first, stepped out of the woods. They kept the dwarves covered. The first archer bent to retrieve their weapons. 
While the dwarves stood with their hands on their heads, the archer ran his hands over them, removed two knives from their belts, and two more that they had stashed in the tops of their boots. The archer swung the axes, sent them spinning into the woods. Tie their hands, he ordered his comrades. He turned back to the dwarves. This road is closed by order of Lord Knight Sykes, commander of the Second Army in the service of Queen Takesis. Failure to comply will result in arrest. If you're on this road, you must be spies. We're taking you back for interrogation. The two dwarves glanced at each other in despair. I guess those humans knew what they were talking about, Pestle said sadly. We're done for, Mortar muttered. Shut up. No talking. The knight emphasized his words with an impersonal blow to the side of Pestle's head. The archer retrieved his arrows, cleaned them off, and put them back in his sheaf. Two of the knights tied the dwarves' hands behind their backs. Move along now. The leader shoved Pestle down the road. Mortar stumbled along behind his brother. The rest of the knights followed. All in all, Pestle said, his head throbbing from the blow, I would have rather have had tea with the kender. Mortar had to think about this a moment, but after looking at the grim, stern, and pitiless faces of the knights, the dwarf was forced miserably to agree. Chapter 19 By the time the sun rose in the morning, the Draconians had dug a defensive ditch around the perimeter of their camp, constructing bunkers at each corner. The entrance was guarded by two more bunkers. Inside, the tents were arranged in neat rows according to squadron. The large tent in the middle was the command tent, where Kang slept. He awoke to the smell of roasted meat. The march had given him a voracious appetite. Last night he had foregone dinner, spent some quiet time in communing with his queen. She had, as was customary, awarded him his magic, though she had seemed a bit distracted, probably due to the war effort. He donned his leather harness but left the armor behind. Strapping on his sword, he went outside. Slith stood by the fire pit, gnawing on a half-eaten bone. When he saw Kang approach, the Sivak gave the cook a nudge. Hurry up there, trooper, the commander's coming. A haunch of venison on a spit was roasting over the fire. The Boz cut off a hunk of meat and handed it to Kang. The juices bubbled beneath blackened skin. Morning to you, sir, Slith said. He saluted with the bone. Good morning, Slith. Kang devoured the meat. Excellent. Where did this come from? Slith smiled. Compliments of Lord Knight Sykes. Welcoming us to the neighborhood. Eat up, Commander. There's more where that came from. You know, I'm beginning to like this guy Sykes after all. Kang carved off another hunk for himself. He and Slith moved away from the cook to have a private talk. Kang knew his second well. Slith had probably been up for hours already, or maybe had not even gone to sleep. Slith could not rest until he'd nosed around, ferreted out the latest camp gossip, learned all he could about the situation. Like following those four dwarves just to see what they were up to. Kang had always said that Slith was more curious than any kender, and that this curiosity would probably land him in a whole mess of trouble one day. Until then, it came in very handy. So, what's up? Kang asked, chewing. Slith pointed down the road on which they'd marched. 
Lord Knight Sykes has his headquarters in the mayor's house in the center of that village. It's known as Mishka, dedicated to the good goddess. Slith sneered, and both draconians spit on the ground. The army moved in three days ago, Slith continued. The knights killed anyone who offered resistance. Most didn't. The town is under iron control. Kang squinted, peering down the road. I don't see any smoke. They're not raising the place. Nope. No massacres of the civilian population. No torturings, public floggings, or property confiscations. Slith grinned. That was a polite term for looting. I'll be damned, Kang grinned back. You mean that they're actually going to concentrate on fighting a war for a change? Get this. Slith leaned near. It seems that the town has a temple for the worshippers of Mishikal. Again, both draconians spit on the ground. Well, the first thing Sykes does is visit that temple. He didn't go inside, of course. But he stood outside it, admired it, and asked to see the priest. The priest comes out and he's about dead from fear. He begs Sykes to spare the temple, saying that there's a bunch of sick people inside. What do you think happens, Commander? Sykes cuts off the priest's head, marches inside the temple, kills the wounded, and then burns the temple to the ground. No, sir! Slith slapped his thigh with his hand. Sykes says that he holds all the gods sacred. Their dwelling places are sacred, and that so long as the priest and his followers obey the law as set down by the knights, he will personally guarantee their safety. Times have certainly changed, Kang marveled. Of course, Slith added with a wink, the knights have a list of laws as long as my tale. Curfews. Everyone has to have papers proving who they are. No one leaves town without the word from Sykes himself. No one enters town without being questioned. Civilians are not permitted to own or carry weapons. All magical items must be turned over to Sykes's wizards, the Grey Knights. No brawling, no gambling, no public drunkenness. Slith nudged Kang in the ribs. That goes for soldiers, too, sir. Kang grunted. I guess we'll have to watch our step. Where'd you put that keg of dwarf spirits? In my tent, sir, under the bed. Good man. Any word on Thorbar? Slith looked over Kang's shoulder, straightened, performed a salute. Talon leader Hazud, sir, he announced. Kang turned, pleased to see the Talon leader. Good morning, sir knight, Kang said. Have you had breakfast? Good morning, commander. Yes, thank you. You're to report to headquarters this morning. If you're ready, I can show you the way. Right, Kang said. Let's go. The two left the camp, headed toward the village. The two regiments of troops they passed on the way into the village were well entrenched, with defensive ditches dug in a square, hastily constructed wooden guard towers at the corners. Archers were posted in each. The two units faced each other across the road. The troops' demeanor, from what Kang could see, was highly professional. He felt a qualm of guilt about the dwarf spirits. Sykes had turned the mayor's house into a command post. He was taking no chances from the civilian populace. Huzud and Kang had to pass through two sets of sentries before they were allowed to enter. Once inside, joining the other officers, they were taken to what must have once been an elegantly appointed banquet room. The table was now being used to display a large map. 
Huzud introduced Kang to an officer who was seated at a desk, adding up a series of numeric columns in a leather-bound book. Commander Kang, this is Quadron Leader Leader Mumul, the logistics commander for the Second Army. Quadron Leader, this is Commander Kang of the Draconian Regiment of Engineers, Huzud saluted, then left. Mumul looked up from his numbers. Please sit down, Commander Kang. I want to discuss with you what your role will be within the Second Army. Yes, Squadron Leader. Kang could barely contain his excitement. Arranging his tail, he sat down in the chair, which had not been designed for draconians. It was damnably uncomfortable, pinched his wings if he folded them in and poked them if he unfurled them. The discomfort was a small price to pay. Could I ask a question before we start, Quadrant Leader? Certainly, Commander. What's the status of the attack on Thorbardin? As I understand it, the Lord Knight force-marched his men to get here, and now instead of attacking, you're just sitting. The Quadrant Leader shrugged. We were too late. The dwarves had been warned. They've sealed up the mountain. Are you going to besiege them, sir? No. There's no time for that. The damned dwarves could hold out for a year against us. It would be a futile waste of manpower. We'll let them sit, hold up in their mountain, if that's what they want. Meanwhile, we'll seize control of all the roads leading into and out of Thorbardin. We have time. Some day they'll have to come out. Kang was impressed. It was a simple but good strategy. And now, Commander, what is the strength of your command? The Quadrant Leader flipped over a new page, prepared to record the information. Kang responded. The Quadrant Leader asked question after question, wanting to know the size, composition, training, equipment, and disposition of the Draconian Regiment. Kang was pleased with the interest the officer was showing in assessing the regiment. The knight recorded the answers in a table in his book. At last he laid down his quill pen and sat back in his chair. Thank you, Commander. The first thing I want you to do this morning is haul all that bridge-building equipment you brought us over to Third Talon. Kang felt a twinge in the vicinity of his shoulder blades, a painful twinge that had nothing to do with the chair. Yes, sir, he said. Do they need a bridge constructed, sir? No, Commander. They're my engineering unit. They can use the materials and tools you brought. You can leave the wagons with Third Talon. You won't be needing them. Ah, I understand, sir. You want us to build siege engines, catapults, trebuchets. We've built them all. Why, once during the War of the Lance, we built a catapult big enough to fling a minotaur. Kang stopped. He didn't like the way the quadrant leader was smiling, patient, patronizing. Third Talon is quite expert at building and manning siege engines, Commander. Sir, Kang began, drawing in a deep breath to try to ease the knot of disappointment that was slowly tightening his stomach. We are all well-trained engineers, probably the best you'll ever find. Plus, we have experience in battle. Did your third talon ever build a bridge with silver dragons flying overhead, filling you with dragon fear, while the elves on the other side of the bank are trying to fill you full of arrows? The commander just sat there, smiling. Look, sir, Kang said, come visit our encampment, see how we're dug in. We only moved in ten hours ago, and yet we've already got the place defensible. For the first time, the quadrant leader showed some interest. Very good, Commander. Very good indeed. Kang was puzzled. What do you mean, sir? 
Damn good diggers, Mummel said, thumping the table in his enthusiasm. I'm glad to hear that you're good diggers. I beg your pardon, sir. You draconians, damn good diggers. Since we can't take out the dwarves, this army has been ordered to move up and conquer the elves in Qualanesti. We already have plenty of engineers, but we can always use good diggers. I'll assign you to the army commissary officer, Talon leader Staunchwald. Kang's jaw dropped, his tongue lolled. He sucked it back with an irritated snap of his jaws. Sir, commissary? We aren't cooks, we're engineers. The quadrant leader had picked up his quill, was returning to his work. Yes, very good, Commander Kang. The commissary command is also responsible for troop hygiene. Please report to Talon Leader Staunchwald after we've arrived at our base camp in the southern region of Qualanesti. Until then, try to stay out of the way of troop movements. It's hard enough keeping this army on the move without your regiment clogging the works. We'll be marching first thing in the morning. Have your men, make that draconians, he said, this time with a slight curl of the lip, ready to go. That will be all, Commander. Oh, and by the way, Quadrant Leader added as an afterthought, you can each keep a short sword for your own defense, but turn in the rest of your weapons. They'll be needed for the front-line troops. Dismissed. Kang stood up, started to salute, decided the hell with it. Latrine duty. The quadrant leader had called it by some fancy name, Troop Hygiene, but Kang knew what that meant. Kang looked for Huzud on his way out. He didn't see her, and on second thought was glad that he didn't. He knew she would sympathize, but he couldn't face the shame of telling her his assignment. He marched back to his camp alone. His anger grew stronger with every step, his feet pounding it into the ground like a hammer pounding molten steel. By the time he'd reached camp, he had worked himself into a tail-lashing, wing-flapping fury. His troops, recognizing the symptoms, fell over one another to get out of his way. Ignoring them all, he stomped over to the command tent. Slith! Kang's yell resounded across the entire camp. Slith had been in Yethik's tent. At the sound of his commander's bellow, he realized something was amiss. He ran out, saw the other draconians muttering to each other, their expressions grim, unhappy. Dashing over to the command tent, Slith flung back the tent flap. What's wrong, sir? he asked. What's happened? Are the dwarves attacking? Kang started to tell him but words were inadequate. His temper blew. Jumping to his feet, he picked up a camp chair, smashed it over a table. The chair slivered. Kang smote the table with his fist, chopped it in two. He was going after the tent post next when Slith collared him. Sir, I wouldn't hit that if I were you. You'll bring the tent down around our ears. Good. Fine, Kang yelled. We can always dig our way out. That's what we're good for. Diggers. Good diggers. Damn these bastards to the abyss and back again. Slith's wings drooped. He stared at his commander, incredulous. Did you say dig, sir? Kang gnashed his teeth. Since he couldn't knock down the tent post... He proceeded to dismember the table, pulling off its legs and smashing them on the ground. Dig, as in latrines, sir, Slith asked. Kang's fury had spent itself a cyclone blowing itself out. He was suddenly very tired. He sank down on his bunk. 
We've been assigned to the commissary command to dig latrines and cooking pits, he said angrily. They have humans for the real combat engineering. They don't need us. In fact, we're probably freeing up some of these blue-painted savages of theirs so that they can be useful somewhere else. Slith sat down next to his commander. He looked as dejected as Kang felt. Latrine duty. I'll be twice damned. What are we going to do, sir? Kang shook his head. I don't know. I really don't know this time. Call a command staff meeting for an hour from now. Inform all of the senior officers what's going on. We'll talk about it then. An hour later, all of the draconian squadron commanders and specialist officers sat in borrowed chairs around the empty space in the command tent where the table had been. Its remnants, along with those of the chairs, were piled up in a heap outside the tent, a mute testimony to the commander's foul mood. Kang opened the meeting. As you have already heard, gentlemen, we have been assigned to latrine duty. You know as well as I do that we'll have the makings of a revolt in our ranks if we have to dig latrines again. Every draconian present hissed and muttered his agreement. Kang continued. We didn't join this army to dig holes for the humans to crap in. I can't believe that this is how Her Majesty intends us to serve her. The question is, what do we do? I'm open to suggestions. Folks, the chief engineering officer, spoke first. Maybe they'll give us line infantry duty? Kang snorted. I forgot to mention that we're to turn in our weapons. He waited until the howls of outrage died down, then proceeded. They don't trust us. That much is obvious. Slith had been sitting silent in deep thought, his claws drumming on the side of the chair. Kang did not disturb him. When his second was ready to talk, he'd talk. Kang was relating everything the quadrant leader had said when Slith suddenly interrupted. What exactly did you say when you volunteered our services to this Lord Knight Sykes, sir? Kang had to think about that one. I believe I said that I offered the regiment to serve in the Second Army, and he accepted. Why? Slith's eyes glistened. I know you, sir. You're proud of us. Are you sure you didn't say something about serving as engineers? I think I did. No, I'm sure I did, Kang said, recalling his talk with the Lord Knight. I said that we'd serve as engineers to this army. Slith leaned forward. Then that's it, sir. We're not being employed as engineers, therefore the terms of the agreement are cancelled. We don't have to stay. Yethik nodded approvingly. They don't want us here. That much is obvious. I say we leave. Kang looked at all of them. This was now deadly serious. He lowered his voice. You realize that Sykes will consider this desertion, or maybe worse. He might think we're spies. We know too much about his movements, his strength, his plans. If we leave and they catch us, they'll kill us. Slith shrugged, grinned. We've outfought Salamnic Knights, sir. I don't see why we can't take on the other side if we have to. But they won't fight, sir. I doubt if they'd even come after us. They've got elvish fish to fry. 
And if they did come after us swell personally, I'd rather die with a sword in my gut, sir, than dig latrines again. I say we go back to Mount Dashanak. Kang considered. He hated the thought of deserting again. He imagined what Hazud would think. That he'd run because of cowardice. She wouldn't understand, and there was no way he could explain. But did it matter what she thought, what any human thought? So long as he and his men and his queen knew the real reason they were leaving, what the humans thought about it wasn't worth spit. Very well, gentlemen, Kang said. It's decided. Tomorrow the army of Dark Knights marches for Qualanesti. Only we won't be here to march with them. We move out tonight, when Solinari is low, and we march until we drop, or we get back home to Mount Dashanak, whichever comes first. We'll take a circuitous route to throw them off. We leave nothing behind, not our tools, not our weapons. Load up the wagons again. What if someone asks what we're doing, sir? Folkth wondered. They won't. They'll think we're operating under special orders. Remember the army's moving out tomorrow morning. There'll be people coming and going all night. No one'll notice us. Yethik, send out foraging parties to replenish our food and water. Slith, seal off the entrance to our camp. Bring any human visitors to me. I doubt we'll get any, but you never know. Folks, have a march order ready for last light. All right, let's move. The officers returned to their duties. Alone, Kang walked over to his bed and sat down, stared at the dirt floor. He was still staring at it when a shadow darkened the open tent flap. Kang looked up. Slith stood there. Next to him was Talon leader Huzud. Official visitor, Slith announced. Kang rose to his feet. Huzud stepped inside the tent, glanced around. She must have seen the remains of the table and the broken chairs being hauled away outside. Huzud hesitated, then, straightening her shoulders, she spoke the speech she'd come to deliver. No work is menial in the eyes of our queen, Commander. Everything we do, we do for her glory. I see you wielding a sword, Talon leader, Kang said dryly, not a shovel. The Talon leader opened her mouth, then shut it again. Turning on her heel, she left. Kang sighed and went back to his cot. I just hope we're doing the right thing. He closed his eyes and lay back on the bunk. He didn't sleep, but lay there thinking. He lay there for a very long time. Chapter 20 The Dark Knights forced their dwarven captives along at a quick pace, shoving them from behind when they lagged, and emphasizing haste with a few lashes across the shoulder blades. The knights spoke to each other in the human tongue, either thinking that the dwarves couldn't understand, or not caring much if they did. Both dwarves did speak human, however. They'd found it helpful in selling their wares. The knights were a long-range patrol, apparently. They spoke about returning to the main body of some army, which was headquartered in a village somewhere up ahead, a human settlement called Mishka. The dwarves looked at each other. They knew of that village. The knights mentioned preparing for battle against the Qualanesti, wondered when the army was going to attack. Mortar breathed a gentle sigh of relief. This army was much too close to his home for his liking. The dwarf was thankful these dark knights were going to go beat up on somebody else. Pessel must have been thinking along the same lines. 
At one point, when the knights halted to give themselves and their captives time to catch their breaths, Pessel leaned over to his brother and whispered, Do you know where we are? We're really close to home. If we could just get these knots loose. Wait till they're asleep, Mortar began. No talking! The knight lashed out with his sword, struck Mortar on the side of the head with the flat of the blade. Shut up or I'll gut you right here. The knights forced their captives to their feet and marched on. It was well after darkness fell before the knights called a halt. Pestle and Mortar plunked down on the ground glad for the rest. They did not dare talk to each other. Any attempt to communicate was met with swift punishment. They sat silent in the darkness, their fingers busy trying to unravel the knots of the leather thongs tied around their wrists. The knights set up camp. Opening their packs, they took out food, which they shared with the dwarves, much to the dwarves' astonishment. The knights gave each dwarf a cup of water, then, once dinner was finished, one of the knights checked their bonds. Fortunately, neither dwarf had managed to make much headway in loosening the thongs. Then tied them to a tree by means of a rope attached to the bonds around their wrists and another tied around their ankles. Go to sleep, the knight ordered, speaking common. We'll be up before dawn. He left to lay out his own bedroll. Two knights took the first watch, one going across the road, disappearing among the trees. The other sat down on a fallen log. The dwarves wriggled about amid the dry leaves, making a show of trying to get comfortable. In reality, they were trying to squirm into the best position for untying the knots. Unfortunately, every time one of them moved, the leaves rustled and crackled. The knight on watch stood up, came to glower down at them. Keep still, he ordered. The dwarves did as they were told, remained unmoving for at least an hour. The other knights had fallen asleep, were softly snoring. The knight on watch was humming a marching song to himself, keeping time by tapping out the rhythm on his knee. Mortar scrunched over closer to his brother, moving slowly so as not to disturb the knight. You know, he whispered, I've been thinking. This is all Selquist's fault. How do you figure that? Pessel whispered back. If he hadn't made us steal all that loot and then made us go sell it, we wouldn't be here. We'd be home in our beds. Mortar sighed. His bed had never before seemed so wonderful. We did go along with the plan, you know, Pessel said, determined to be fair. Yes, but we would have never even thought up the stupid plan if it weren't for Selquist, Mortar pointed out. You're right there, Pessel admitted. He was quiet a moment, muttering to himself. What did you say? Mortar asked. I was making a deal with Reorks, Pessel returned. I promised him that if he got us out of this, I'd never steal anything again. That's a good idea. Mortar regarded his brother in admiration. I'd do the same thing. He added his promise to that of his brother, both bargaining with the notoriously irascible and often unpredictable god of forging, whom the dwarves worship exclusively. The knight ceased his humming, and the dwarves had to be quiet. But by now, both had managed to work the knots into position so that their nimble fingers could yank and pry and tease the thongs apart. The knight said something out loud, and the dwarves froze until they realized he wasn't talking to them. He was, by the sound of it, chanting a prayer to the Dark Queen. How are you doing? Mortar whispered. Almost got it, Pessel whispered back. Dear, my hands are free. 
You? Mortar grunted. He was having more trouble. They tied mine tighter, he complained. No talking over there, the knight said. Mortar waited for the man to return to his prayer chance, which fortunately appeared to occupy him a good deal and to be of considerable length. Mortar tugged and pulled, and suddenly the knot came loose. Rayorks be thanked. I got it, he whispered. Good, said Pestle. No, we wait for him to fall asleep. What if he doesn't? Mortar asked. Pooh, he will. Humans always fall asleep on guard duty. The dwarves waited confidently for another hour. Then, too, the human was destined to disappoint them. The knight rose, refreshed from his prayers, appearing more wide awake than ever. Worse, he started walking toward them, apparently with the idea of checking their bonds. Hear me, Reorks, Mortar whispered in desperation. Not only do I promise that I will never steal again, I'll give back everything I ever took. The guard halted. His head jerked around, stared toward the road. He stood silent, listening, then leaned down and shook two of his comrades by the shoulder. Something's moving out on the road. The other knights were wide awake, on their feet with their swords in hand, before the first had completed his sentence. Moving silently, the two knights crept about, waking the others. They grabbed their bows, knocked arrows, and took up position behind a hedgerow. The tromp of many feet could be clearly heard, along with the jingle of armor. It must be part of our own army, one of the knights said softly. Who else would be moving around this time of night? We weren't informed of any troop movements, said the leader, and they're moving away from Mishka, not toward it. I don't like this. You keep concealed. I'll ask to see their orders. If they give the wrong answer, fire your arrows into them. Mortar and Pestle looked at each other. It was now or never. The dwarves cast off the bonds around their wrists, reached down and untied the cords around their ankles. One of the knights glanced over at them, and the dwarves ceased all movement. The knight returned to watching the road. No, Pestle whispered. The two jumped up and began to run, heading away from the road, hoping to throw off pursuit by losing themselves in the forest. They heard no sounds of anyone chasing them. Perhaps the knights, preoccupied with the army on the road, hadn't even missed them. The dwarves ran faster. Crashing through underbrush, they caromed off trees, tripped over fallen logs. Mortar saw the red glowing outline of a body loom in front of him just a fraction of a second too late to warn his brother. Strong arms grabbed hold of him, a hand clapped over his mouth. He recognized the smell, the clawed fingers, the short stubby wings extending from the shoulders. Draconians! Mortar struggled and fought, kicking and biting the hand. By the sounds of thrashing and swearing, Pestle had also been captured. Blast! Ouch! Damn it! He bit me! Bastard knight! Hold still or I'll slit your throat! Caught in a grip of iron, claws digging into his skin and the horrid taste of draconian flesh in his mouth, Mortar ceased his struggles. He had a few choice remarks to make to Reorks when he saw him, which was probably going to be soon. It's not the knights, you fool, Boz, hissed the draconian holding Mortar to a fellow draconian, the one who had grabbed Pestle. They're dwarves. Those two the knights were holding prisoner. By our queen, you've smelled dwarf enough the last twenty-five years. You'd think you recognize it by now. And since when did you ever see knights this short and this hairy? From behind them, out by the road, they heard a clear voice shout, Halt! 
Advance and be recognized. A grating draconian voice boomed. Oh, well met, Sir Knight. You have lonely duty this night, it seems. What is this? the knight asked, sounding amazed. An army of draconians? The first regiment of draconian engineers, was the proud reply. I must ask to see your written movement orders, Commander, the knight said. I know of no authorized movement of troops, especially an entire regiment down this road in the middle of the night. They've got archers in the trees, whispered one of the draconians. We have to warn the commander. I don't know how we're going to talk our way out of this. I'll... He stopped, then said, excited, By our queen, these godforsaken dwarves could come in handy. Come on. Yes, Subcommander Smith, the Boz answered. The draconians tucked the dwarves under their powerful arms and started off through the forest at a rapid pace, heading back to the road. Mortar's heart would have fallen into his boots if it hadn't been for the fact that he was being held in a position where his boots were higher than his heart. The draconians charged right through the ranks of the concealed archers, who had turned at the sound of the crashing and yelling. The knights held their fire, but they kept their bows raised. Hello, boys, Slith said loudly, giving them a salute. Nice night for target practice, ain't it? Emerging from the forest, still carrying the two dwarves, the draconians marched over to a very large draconian who was standing in the middle of the road, talking to the two knights. Behind the draconian stretched a line of draconians as far as the eyes of the dwarves could see. You have archers hiding in the woods, the big draconian said. Yes, sir, the knight was grim. Now if I could see your orders, sir... He stopped talking. He had just noticed the two dwarves. You aren't by any chance missing two prisoners, are you, sir knight? Slith asked. He took a firm grip on Mortar's shirt collar, held him up for display. Mortar swung and kicked, trying to hit the draconian, but he did so more out of frustration than because he thought he might connect. We caught them running loose in the woods, Commander Kang, Slith continued, saluting the big draconian. Mortar suddenly took a good look at the draconian, realized he recognized him. Twisting around in midair, Mortar looked at his brother, who was staring at the draconian with fearful eyes. Yes, Pestle apparently recognized the draconian, too. It was the big Bozak from the draconian village, the one the war chief said was the leader. We're doomed. Mortar said for a second time, and went limp in the Draconian's grasp. If these knights don't kill us, the Draconian's will. Dwarven prisoners, running about loose, Kang was eyeing the knight, who appeared extremely discomfited. What is the meaning of this, sir knight? We had taken them prisoner earlier, sir. They must have managed to work the knots free. Then we heard you coming. I went to investigate, and when I turned my back on them, they took off. Good thing we were here to catch them again, wasn't it? Kang said, rocking back on his heels, balancing on his tail. Yes, Commander, the knight said glumly, adding, If you'll hand them over, sir, we'll see to it that they don't escape again. Kang looked at the two dwarves. Mortar had the unhappy feeling that the draconian had recognized the dwarves as well. Then Bozak scratched his chin. You seem to be rather careless with your prisoners, Sir Knight. I think we'll take them in charge. The knight was not pleased. 
he must have been wondering how he'd managed to lose control of the situation. Sir, the prisoners are our responsibility, and you still haven't shown me your orders. The Sivak holding onto Mortar dropped the dwarf to the ground. Slith strode forward, thrust his jaw into the human's face. Now listen here, Sir Knight. I want to know your name and rank immediately. My name is Glaf Herrick. Talon second under... The Sivak gave a howl. Talon second? And you dare to talk sass back to a regimental commander? I'll have you flogged in front of Lord Knight Sykes's command tent for this. Now take your skulking, leather-creaking, prancing beauties back into the woods and leave the real work of the war for us veterans. These prisoners are now under our jurisdiction. Carry on, Talon Second. The knight was going to argue, but at that moment his archers walked out of the woods, escorted by at least fifty draconians. The knight muttered several threats about reporting this to his superiors, then with a grudging salute he called off his men and returned to their camp. Company forward, Slith yelled. The draconians fell into ranks and marched off. Slith remembered at the last moment to pick up mortar, plucking him out of the road, saving him from being trampled by the clawed feet of two hundred draconians. Slith, with mortar tucked under his arm again, hurried up to march at the side of his commander. You think they'll report this, sir? Slith asked. Hell yes, Kang said. They've probably got a runner on his way right now. At least we know the road's not safe. They've likely got patrols up and down it. We'll put about five miles behind us, then head into the mountains. Double-time march! Move! 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 The Sivak shouted commands, and the Draconians picked up the pace. Mortar craned his neck, peered under the Draconian's arm, trying to see what had become of his brother. Pestle was being carried on the back of the same Boz Draconian who had captured him. Seeing Mortar looking at him, the Boz grinned. Wicked teeth gleamed in the lambent light of the stars. The Boz flicked his tongue over them. Dwarf meat for breakfast. Yum, yum, he said. Mortar gulped and looked hurriedly away. No talking in the ranks, Slith ordered. Save your breath, you're going to need it. The Draconians maintained their breakneck pace all through the long night. Leaving the road, they ascended into the mountains. The going proved rough and difficult, but even this did not slow them by much. Their clawed feet and hands made them expert climbers. Their wings saved them from what might have otherwise been nasty falls. The dwarven prisoners proved to be the biggest hindrance. The draconians could not carry the dwarves and climb, too. Mortar assured the draconians that they could leave him and his brother behind and there would be no hard feelings, but Commander Kang said no. He ordered the dwarves roped together, put two Ba's in charge of them, and ordered the dwarves to march. Pestle refused. He was rumpled and rattled, but defiant. He planted his feet, folded his arms across his chest, and glared. I'm not moving. Me neither, said Mortar. Kang bent down to dwarf eye level. I can always toss you back to the knights, he said. Pestle and Mortar looked at each other. We'll march, Pestle said meekly. It was now mid-morning. Mortar had never worked so hard in his life. He scrabbled and slipped and slid. His hands were torn and bleeding. More than once some draconian caught him when he started to fall, saving him from tumbling off the mountain. Whenever they reached a bit of level ground, the Sivak made them run, striking their shoulders with a lash if they slowed their pace. 
Then it was back to climbing. Always in Mortar's mind was the unhappy thought that he was undergoing this torture only to be cooked in the end. By the time morning came, Mortar was so exhausted and hurting that he didn't care if he was a draconian's breakfast. Just as long as he didn't have to climb or run anymore, he was trudging along, his head down, forcing his boots to move one after the other when a hand clutched him. Mortar! Look! Pestle was pointing. Mortar gazed wearily upward. He drew in a deep breath. Mount Salabund! Only one pass stood between them and their home. So close, and yet so far. Halt! Kang called out. Cease march! Fifteen-minute rest! The draconians halted, as exhausted as the dwarves. Many collapsed where they stood, lying on the rocks, panting, their tongues lolling. Others grabbed their water-skins, guzzled water thirstily. Mortar and Pestle sat down, staring wistfully, longingly, at the mountain peak. The Sivak loomed above them, blotting out the view. On your feet! The commander wants to see you. This is it, said Mortar. Goodbye, Pestle. You've been a really good brother. You too, Mortar, Pestle said, tears in his eyes. The two embraced. Oh, for the love of the Dark Queen, come on, the Sivak snarled. The two trudged over to where the big Bozak was seated on a rock. I recognize you two. You're from Celebundan, aren't you? Kang growled. The draconian was gray with fatigue. Maybe we are, Mortar said, determined not to cooperate. And maybe we're not. The Bozak smiled. Well, if you are from Celebundan, that pass there will take you home. Goodbye and thanks. Mortar and Pestle stood and stared so long it seemed they had turned into part of the mountain. Did you say goodbye? Pestle was not certain he'd heard right. Do you mean we can go? Mortar asked for clarification. Go, get, skedaddle, Kang said. Mortar felt renewed strength. The two dashed off, fearful that the draconian might change his mind. A few yards away, though, Mortar came to a halt. He looked back, his brow furrowed. You said thanks. Thanks for what? You saved our lives back there, Kang said. The least we can do is return the favor. He waved a clawed hand. See you in a couple of weeks. We're almost out of dwarf spirits. What? Mortar was puzzled. Oh, I get it. You... Pestle grabbed his brother's arm and dragged him off. Two hours later, they reached the highest part of the pass and looked down on their secluded valley. We've made it, said Mortar, drawing in a deep breath. He gazed down lovingly on Celebundan. I swear I can smell the smoke of the cooking fires. It's not cooking fires, Pestle said grimly, pointing at the other end of the valley where thick black smoke was rising into the air. Take a look. Reox's beard, Mortar said, alarmed. There's going to be hell to pay. Run for it. We have to warn the Thane. Pestle was already running, fear lending strength to his tired legs. Mortar was right. There would be hell to pay. Chapter 21